You know, one of the things as we build cameras, we have a couple of different audiences um, when we're building cameras. One of one of the audience, uh, probably the most important audience that we have is ourselves. We're building cameras for ourselves. But we also uh, have the idea that other people will want to use them. Uh, so we kind of think about, you know, who's going to, who's going to use a camera that I design. So I am going to ask you to imagine the most successful design and I don't need the description of the design, but tell me what the user base would be. And I, um, what I'm looking for is just numbers and how popular that camera would be. Um, what, what are you looking for in, uh, in an audience for a camera you, des- you would design? Uh, well, there's no one answer because uh, I like, really like variety. Part of the reason I want to build cameras is to create as many different kinds of configurations to try and experiment with. But if you mean like my favorite type of camera, the things that, uh, maybe I'm most likely to get excited about myself then it's going to be i would say uh, i'm an audience of people who are more inclined to exploration and journalism and basically uh so portable sturdy all-weather cameras that you can take in a backpack on a trip that that would be my primary uh that's that's a type of camera here's here's what here's where i'm going here's what i'm trying to get at um, what I'm trying to get at is um, uh, we've been both following Hamish, Hamish Gill and his Pixelator. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem with the Pixelator was it was a little bit more successful than he thought it was going to be. So that opened up some different manufacturing techniques that have... I, you know, from what I gather, it just been a huge pain in the whatever you want to call, uh, whatever you want to, uh, um, uh, identify. Um, he, he, you know, he's finally got a manufacturing partner. Um, he is doing it there, uh, near his house, which is, which is good. Uh, his original idea was to laser cut and now he's doing injection molding and, um, uh, and, and so that creates a different product, but I think that he was a little bit uh, a victim of his own success in that, which is which is not bad. I think that um, I, I think that he's he's going to take it through um, to the end. I don't I don't think that that's a problem. But let's um, let's look at people like the um, the jolly jolly look camera. Um, the Jolly Look camera was, uh, wildly successful on, um, on Kickstarter. And because they were wildly successful, they ended up with, um, many more to manufacture than they could really manufacture. So they had to go to, um, you know, somebody who would manufacture for them and then, and the quality wasn't good. And so they had to, you know, sue to get their parts back. And then they had to go to another manufacturer. Whereas if it's a small product, 
you can kind of develop that production in house. Right, or there or there's potential for designs that are on demand so that if if you're right. making something that that could be basically just a file that could be printed out all different kinds of ways, uh, that sort of protects you from that. On the other hand, as soon as you pass a certain quantity, it's always worth looking at mass production methods. That that's not a concern that I have at this point. I I don't. I suppose eventually I might come up with a design that would be extremely popular, but most of the things I'm interested in, I, I don't expect to be in that category uh, because I'm maybe more interested in oddball uh, right. stuff myself. Right. But who knows? Who knows? I mean, the thing is, films, film photography and experimental photography is on the rise right now. So, uh, and there is just, there is a big vacuum. There aren't a lot of people making cameras anymore. Uh, so that's why people, I think people keep getting taken by surprise that, you know, there's more demand for these things than people expected. Right, right. I, I think that we are in a time of the boutique camera. Um, we're at, at a time where small runs um, are preferable to big runs. Um, I, I I talked with uh, Todd Schlemmer um a bit probably about six months ago and about his production techniques. And, um, and one of the things that I asked him was, uh, have you ever thought of injection molding rather than, uh, 3d printing? Because if you go to injection molding, your per unit cost drops to pretty close to zero. Um, I mean, we're talking cents, as opposed to, uh, you know, something that would take 10 hours on a uh, 3D printer. It has a much higher per unit cost um, at that point. But the um, uh, the problem with doing injection molding is the molds themselves cost, you know, maybe $20,000 to put together. And if you're clever, of course, you can, you know, have a whole camera on a single mold um, uh, which, you know, a single die, which would, would work pretty well, but there's, you know, you have to get to the, um, you know, you have to recoup $20,000, uh, in sales and there aren't too many camera designs out there right now, film camera designs out there right now that can recoup that much. Uh, in sales. Um, yeah. And <clears throat> they're not what I'm particularly excited about building for myself either. Right. That's, right. Uh, that's a lot of people. But it does bring up something that we talked about recently with Ethan uh, Moses, which is that there's certainly an argument for having some universal connection uh, modularity built into design so that my little boutique camera would possibly be able to be uh, the parts would possibly be able to be used with someone else's boutique camera All right and that that already exists with you know graph lock standard and medium and large format worlds which have basically the large format world has been you know in the boutique segment of the market all along you know and yes they're already kind of configured for the future but what we're starting to see is more and more people interested in building smaller format cameras, uh, especially 35 millimeter. And 
And those, there is no standard like that. Um, there is a long tradition of individual manufacturers maintaining proprietary co connections, and with very few exceptions. And I'd like to see a standard for certain connections uh, in in 135 format that we could use as camera builders so that my film back will work on your camera. Right. It's an option. Some people won't want to do it, but I'd, I'd like to establish some norms that people can use when they want to create that synergy between different designs. And I think it would be a lot of fun. And it would help a little bit with what you're talking about, because if somebody does come up with a great 35 millimeter roll film back design, then, then, you know, the person who decides to spend the money on the, on the molds, uh, will not just be opening up their own market, but they'll be connecting to everyone else's markets. And that, and that's pretty valuable, I think. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think you're right on that. Um, and you know, one of the ways to do that, uh, one of the ways to, uh, to work with it is work with already existing standards. So um, you do the graph lock back and an M42 mount. Um, you just need to have a shutter in there, and um, and you know you you know in a viewing system and a focusing system. Well, that's a that that's stuff, a, that's one way to do it. But but the reason I'm mentioning a separate 135 format standard is just to get a smaller, more compact size. So. Right. Even even a you know a two and a quarter by three and a quarter graph lock it's fairly compact and for most purposes it's probably fine but it would be I think it would be nice to have sort of a minimal size interface so that you could build really small thirty five millimeter cameras with an interchangeable film back so right. so that's something I want I want to work on and it doesn't have to be very complicated it's just just a dimension and you know uh, some kind of way to connect it doesn't have to be very complicated yeah and um, and my way is to just um make a smaller graph lock um and all we have to do with that is determine um you know what's the maximum you know certainly a 35 millimeter frame we need a 24 by 36 um frame size um you know that standard frame size but we you know do we want to go maybe a little bit wider? Um, so our mount has to be a little bit wider. Um, well, I think I think you could come up with a standard that would have a standard height and the and the width could be open. Um, that, because if you think about how a graph lock works, it's you know with tabs on top and bottom. Uh, there's no real reason you couldn't make something to that standard but wider. Right. Uh, so, well, yeah. I, you know, part of the deal is. Um, we kind of want to uh, go with a single standard, I think, um, and then, you know, just make it um, as uh, adaptable as possible uh, within that single standard. So, uh, you know, I mean, we, we're probably not going to be able to make cameras the size of, you know, an OM-1 Um but if we shoot for a camera the size of an Icon F, which is a bigger and heavier camera, um, then maybe we will, um, you know, we'll we'll uh, we'll be able to uh, work within that larger size. Yeah, I think a film gate, even as wide as a, as the X Pan standard would, wouldn't mean a very very big back actually. Yeah. 
it's it's just the gate size that you're talking about. And so I could see making a wider one. Uh, I could also see a, a working a, out a way to make one that could could function either way. I think yeah. I think there's uh, I think it would be fun to make the, the 35 millimeter film back as compact as practical uh, because that's part of the whole point of bothering with that film. Well, there's more film available as well. Um, but yeah yeah anyway that's something to work on uh i think it's a good idea and i think we should we should really sort of brainstorm for a while and come up with something very simple but uh useful and then uh try building some and and throw it out there because it would i think it would be great to have interchangeable film backs on 35 millimeter for a lot of reasons um uh, you know it would be practical but also fun to be able to have more than one film available and switch it around and uh, sure and it would and it, then again we have that idea that once you've built yourself one or two film backs that's like almost half the camera figured out now you mentioned m42 uh as a possible standard for lenses and actually i think i would that's something that it, it doesn't really matter each camera can be different but i would go for a real something really uh, with a short flange back distance and then use adapters. So there's already adapters available for uh, almost any different system connecting to another. And if you start with one of the short flangebacks, like say a rangefinder standard, uh, then you can always add longer lenses on with adapters. Yeah, I think that, that that's definitely a, a workable. Uh, so what do you say we start the homemade camera podcast? So, uh, one of the things that I've run into lately, uh, specifically since, um, it, really over the, the last year when I switched from, you know, the, the Franken camera approach where I'm getting old cameras and chopping them apart and putting on new lenses, new lens cones and, uh, and that type of thing. Um, what I moved from that to, uh, the 3d printing is, um, I start to, I've started to really look at every problem through the 3d printed, uh, 3d printed solution lens. Um, and, uh, and I'm starting to feel like I've got a hammer and everything's looking like a nail. So, uh, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, yeah, 3D is great for making the body and components and, and some different things, um, but it's not great for everything. Um, you know, uh, uh, the film advance is, uh, is a part that needs to be more durable than you can normally make with a 3D printed um, uh, you know, 3D printed materials, that type sure, of thing. And what, and what I'm observing is that uh, if you can probably engineer almost anything to be made out of plastic, but it changes the size of parts. In other words, in order to make a durable 
film reel with a good bearing, you may have to make it quite a bit larger than you would out of, uh, say, metal, for instance. And that that changes the scale and appearance of, of the of the cameras. And so it may be possible to make anything out of plastic, but it may not result in an ideal or, you know, for, for instance, compact result. Uh, so when you want a big, a big puffy camera, it's great. But if you're trying to make something really small and, and, uh, sleek, you may, may want to use a different material. Yeah. I, I think I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. So let's, um, let's talk about, um, the different, um, uh, the the different parts of the camera and and what works. Um, so you know uh, we could start with the body, and um, one of the things that's nice about the body is that you know it's one that can be made out of multiple materials, depending on the performance to weight to aesthetic triangle. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, so, uh, if, if we look at say the parrot cam, uh, design for camera bodies where he's, you know, using just absolutely beautiful wood, um, then, you know, you, you've got that material, um, the aesthetic is working really well there. Um, the durability is fairly high but then its weight is also fairly high uh i think that has to do more with design than with the material because in fact if it's used right wood is one of the strongest materials for its weight in existence in fact they only recently were able to surpass the lightest strongest woods with with special high-tech carbon fiber so i think that 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 the heavy design in wood is more a function of the person who's doing the work, um, picking a simple solution instead of the more elegant or lightweight solution. In other words, in order to make a really lightweight wooden camera, you need a little bit more skill. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll definitely go with that. Uh, I was just, um, my, my home office and my, um, bedroom, we, uh, put in some new floor, uh, some new flooring. We tore up some 13 year old carpet and, uh, put down some hardwood floors. And, uh, as part of that, I had to confront everything that I had in my office <laughs> and decide, do I want to keep it? Is that the type of thing that I want to keep? Is that the type of thing that I want to have, um, you know, uh, and, and maintain and, and one of the things that I was really questioning was one of my early, uh, attempts at making a pinhole camera that was made out of essentially one inch, um, maple. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's my point. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, again, you know, one of the advantages of having a camera like that is, you know, if somebody hassles you out in the field, you can club them with it. Um, right. Or, and if you carve a camera from a, a solid log, it's going to be a lot chunkier than if you build it up out of, you know, glued veneer or something. Right. More sophisticated. right. right. Exactly. Um, one of the things with wood is that you, uh, do need, to, and it all depends on the wood. You need it to be thick enough to be light tight. Um, but, uh, y- you can use fairly thin materials and, um, uh, and, you know, like the, uh, spray 
rubber, uh, black spray rubber that uh, will light seal. Uh, and there's issue, there's issues to do with climate uh, as well. So yeah. uh, in the old days, the the most expensive cameras were the tropical models that were designed to take into a hot, humid climate. You know, somewhere out in the empire, when you uh, when you set off on your travels, you would pay extra for tropical hardwoods to be used in the camera manufacture, as well as more expensive metals that could handle the corrosion right and that brings up a whole other set of issues that when you mix different materials together they're going to have different rates of expansion and contraction uh, they're going to respond to humidity in different ways so you have to take that into account in the design uh, and the, the extreme example of that were the the early attempts to get a really accurate uh, time pieces for navigation and it oh, took a long point. time to get to get the right combinations of materials uh, that would allow something to perform consistently at sea in all sorts of weather. And it's the same with anything that you build. So if you look at some of the older cameras that were made of mixed materials, and a, a great example are the Graflex cameras, which are a combination of mahogany and stainless steel and uh, various other leather, various other materials, it took a lot of knowledge and experience to put all those things together in a way that would would stay strong and, and precise over time. So when you mix materials, you have to think a little bit harder. On the other hand, you can use each material for what it's best at. Um, and so in theory, it's best. It's the, the ideal is to mix different materials instead of just sticking to one, one material. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the, um, one of the, the elements that I think is, a little bit less optional um, on materials uh, is that connection, um, the the body to lens connection, the uh, body to film back connection. Um, yeah. So before we leave bodies, I, I had written down a hierarchy. Um, the best materials, in my opinion, are probably for bodies. It's pretty open, but I just put down metal, wood, and plastic as all three being very good options for the body. Uh, I think they're all good options. And then in the not in the acceptable materials that may or may not be quite as widely useful, I put fabric and cardboard, tape and wire because you can actually make you could make uh, essentially like a fiberglass kind of construction out of fabric and glue. Sure. Or cardboard and tape. There are like just about any light type material can turn into a camera body. Um, so I just thought I'd mention that that seems to me that the widest open category, almost anything will work as long as you can get it to be light tight. And then you're, now you're bringing up connectors. And when you, when you talk about connectors, I think of two things. I think about the connection between lens and body that you mentioned, and there's a whole lot of standards already out there, um, bayonets and screw mounts and whatnot, um, and including some that aren't even traditionally part of the camera world, but are sort of developing out of the the Chinese helical market. So there are these oddball thread sizes that may or may not correspond to any existing lenses, but they've now become part of my basic... I'm, For instance, I use M65 thread a lot because it's a big-sized helical that will work with a lot fairly large lenses without uh, causing vignetting or, you know, getting getting in the way. So... So there are a number of um, default standards based on the hardware that's available uh, in the world. 
But then the other the other connectors I just wanted to uh, mention before we run away is just screws, bolts, uh, hardware, stainless steel, usually preferable, but any sort of um, fasteners for a t a connecting parts that you want to be able to take back apart again. So you can just glue everything together, um, but then oh, if right. you need to repair it, you can't get in, right? So I like to use bolts and screws where where it's practical. And most cameras are put together with tiny little screws uh, and sort of makes it possible to get them back apart later and adjust things and change your mind and all that. Sure, sure, absolutely. And uh, one of the, you know, that, that reminds me of uh, in the art world, we talk about archive, st archival stability, which is, of course, a hollow promise um, for everything that we do. Uh, you know, probably minus ceramics uh, that, that have proven to, to, to last the test of time. But, you know, even those are going to, going to end up as powder, uh, as dust at some point. Um, but we talk about reversibility. Um, and that was what you were, you know, essentially alluding to with the idea of, uh, you know, you can glue anything together that you want, but it, you might want to take it apart as well. Right. Um, so, uh, so that's, uh, uh, you know, a, a pretty important, uh, part or, of or even to make an adjustment. So for instance, if I, if I have a camera and I bolt it together, uh, front to back, and then I change the lens and the lens has a slightly different flange back distance, well, then all I need to do is add or subtract a little spacer. Um, to my whole assembly to get it to work right again. Uh, whereas if you're 3D printing a solid camera body and it's the wrong length, you have to start over and print yep. a new one out. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you do! <laughs> and exactly. somehow I've done that. In fact, actually, I, I, I did that with a print that I uh, I did yesterday as a test. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that's, uh, that's part of it. I'll, I'll, I'll do another test uh, today and figure out exactly what I've done wrong. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and, you know, I'll fix it, fix it with, uh, and I'll talk about that in a, uh, a little bit later in the show, because we're going to talk about what we're doing these days. So yep, let's we'll talk, to it. let's talk about lenses. Um, well, before, before you leave connectors, oh, okay. again, I, I, keep, I made a, I, I made a list. rushing out of these categories before you're That's right. all right. Um, so best <laughs> materials, I think stainless steel and bronze are the ideal fastening materials, uh -huh. usually stainless, usually stainless steel. Um, but they're not perfect. Stainless steel, for instance, uh, stainless steel nuts and bolts, if you tighten them too much, they can uh, do something called galling where they won't come apart again. Uh, so even stainless is not always the perfect fastener. And, and it's a little soft, so, you know, screw heads will tend to strip if you try and over-tighten them and so forth. But it, for most okay. purposes, they're fine. Uh, and then, so acceptable materials would be uh, other types of steel fasteners, steel plated or you know galvanized or whatever but also there are a whole um category of nylon nuts and bolts that are out there and they're worth looking at because especially with plastic sure. cameras they're they're another whole uh, very lightweight um you can get big you know big threads with a lot of grip but necessarily but not heavy you know so and one worth of the things that's too. kind of nice about nylon is um as opposed to some other plastics that are a little bit more rigid, it has a flexibility in it mm -hmm. that allows it to absorb shock for 
uh, more sensitive parts of, of, uh, of a camera bot or a camera, you know, with a, if it was nylon 3d printed body, you know, your most sensitive thing is going to probably be the shutter that is inside the lens component. Um, mm-hmm. and that nylon has that, that little bit of give, um, yeah. which I think is, uh, is really nice. It makes it a little bit more durable. It does. It, it is a kind of a, a soft material. So it does scratch, uh, easily, mm-hmm. um, but uh but you can use a big oversized bolt made of nylon and and it it won't add a whole lot of weight so you can get away with you know sort of this oversized deep thread kind of connection connector that'll hold up pretty well uh and then while we're on connectors too we shouldn't forget to mention a string and elastic um there's there's all sorts of you know a lot of cameras will the, uh, the OG that we're playing with right now uses elastic, uh, and it works really well. I'm actually surprised by how well the elastic connection works. I agree. So, and it's super, super easy to repair and replace. And so that's another one. And I guess, uh, you know, tape and glue and all of those things come under the connector category as well. Uh, making that universal connection so that other people can, uh, can develop parts for it. Uh, one of the things I like about the OG is, uh, and here, let's, let's be really clear. Um, go to cameradactyl.com and you're looking at the four by five point and shoot, um, uh, camera that he's, uh, that, uh, Ethan's put together. Yeah. And you can see what the camera, the cameradactyl OG is. So, um, you know, t- take a moment to look that up because I think it's it's just really cool. But it's a um, big four big four by five hand camera, mostly made of plastic. Right, right, exactly. Um, so uh, one of the things about it is, uh, you know, I mean, I'm immediately looking at okay, so what can I do that can clamp onto that back? Uh, I love roll film. I like the size that. Um, uh, you know, four by five gives me, um, but I love roll film and I'm kind of looking at what can I do with this? Well, this is a good example of connectivity because it's not technically a graph lock back, but it's designed to take, uh, film backs that go in a graph lock back. So you have the right size and shape slot to fit a graph lock film holder in there. And, but it's essentially like the old spring back cameras in that it doesn't have the the metal tabs that work with the more modern graph lock film holders. But there are roll film holders designed for the old spring back cameras. I happen to have one, which I was, was in a box of things to sell. And <laughs> when the OG came in the mail, I yanked it back out again because now I have a 6x9 roll film back made by Calumet, uh-huh. I think. Or maybe it's Cambo, one of those that's designed to slide in the same space that a sheet film holder takes up. So it works uh-huh. fine with the, it goes right in there. It snaps right into the, uh, to the OG. So I have a six by nine roll film back that works. Um, and, uh, it, you know, turns it into a, uh, eight exposure camera where I can turn a crank to advance the film between right. shots. So that'll be a lot of fun. So we, we've got, um, you know, three different parts of a lens. Um, so, and, you know, a fourth, if we include the shutter within the lens, um, but we have the, the, uh, optical elements, we have the barrel 
And then we have the focusing elements. And those all, you know, kind of, uh, you know, they can they can be all in, in one single unit or they can be separated out. Um, mm-hmm. But, it, you know, that, that lensing... Um, one of the things I looked into recently is there's a, a, a material that you can uh, buy for 3D printing, uh, PETG, um, and it's essentially a version of the material that a soda bottle is made out of. And um, that is uh, a material that I looked at, and and I've been listening to the Classic Lenses uh, podcast. Yeah, so have um, I. And they have been talking, uh, I guess maybe over the last month, they've been talking about how to, how to address balsam separation. And one of the things is, oh, you can, you can boil it for three days and, and then re-cement the lenses. Uh, and I guess after three days, the lens elements come apart. So you kind of need to know what order they're in, right? Um, or you can, <laughs> and you need, you need to have some fresh balsam to put it back together. Right. You know? Well, or, although or, there are modern glues. For yeah. Glass, a modern you know optical doing. cement, I'm sure. Uh, well, especially the UV setting ones would be what I would recommend. Yeah. So yeah. You, you can put it together and then until you expose it to UV light, it, it isn't permanent. Yeah. You, know? um, you can, yeah. you can probably recommend one of those for me, but I don't think I'm ever going <laughs> to ever going to come across them uh, or ever, ever going to use them. But the, um, the thing that I was thinking was um, if you were to print, what, one of the things that happens when you print anything using, uh, uh, you know, a 3d printer that extrudes a small amount of plastic and, and into a pattern is that there are little gaps, little holes, little bubbles Little areas. So what you're saying is that with 3D printed plastic lens is a piece of crap. That's what you're trying to get. Well, to. you know, I was, I was, th- I'm, I'm okay with the piece of crap element of it. I'm okay with the idea, um, of, of, uh, you know, having bubbles in the lens. And what I was really looking for was like a sub Holga experience, um, or even, even worse, you know, a sub FPP debonair experience. Uh, because the Holga that I have that I got from you is much better than my debonair. Much you better can just, than my if debonair. You, if, you, if you find that it's too high a quality, you can just smear some Vaseline on it. Or yeah, something. right, I mean, right. Yeah, I yeah. mean, uh, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not really interested in making terrible lenses. I'm, I'm kind of... Uh, I'm kind of wanting to go in the other direction. Right, actually. right. Yeah, yeah. No, I know about that. I, I, I know. I, I'm kind of though. Once again, I, I'm talking about. I'm, I'm really interested in going down the fidelity curve, uh, and far down the fidelity curve. And I, you know, uh, and so I asked, asked my resident expert Nick, or not Nick, sorry, Ethan, um, and, uh, and, and he said, yeah, you're wasting your time. Um, uh, and, um, so, and so he has some, in, in other some words, it is, it goes it. beyond the fidelity curve. That, that's right. It goes down right. to the opaque curve, <laughs> 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 the non image making curve, the, right. but you know, I, I, I think that there, I'm still going to probably try it. Um, of course I think I, I think I have to replace some of the, uh, some of the parts on my, on the hot end of my um, 3D printer to allow it to print that material. But well, um, I, I, 
<clears throat> I took the liberty of putting down a rating of materials, and what I have best material for lens glass. <laughs> acceptable material, <laughs> acceptable material for lens. Pinhole, plastic, and water. Folks, Those three are you options heard it because... here first. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, the, what you want with a lens is you want something that is going to diffract light. It's going to bend right. light. Right. And you want it to bend light reasonably consistently so that you can get all the light going where you want it to go. <laughs> right. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> okay. So, uh, if you, so if you've got some sort of uh, waffle made out of a soda bottle, you know, yeah, it'll defra- it'll diffract light all over the place in all kinds of different directions, and it might be interesting, but it it'd be hard to make a lens. Yeah, well, okay. So, I mean, the point of the lens is to collimate light, right? Um. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that you know. I think that maybe I can get that effect. I think that maybe I can collimate light. Um. I just have to figure out how. Um. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, the, if I were to 3D print using PETG, um, I would, that would be a start, but it sure would not be the end. Um, mm-hmm. I would have to do something to fill in the gaps. And, um, you know, what I was thinking is, you know, if you heat the element to the point where it starts to melt, but it doesn't actually melt into a puddle, but it starts to melt then you're getting to the point where those element or, or those gaps can kind of merge. I mean, I, I, I you know, I, it's not like I haven't thought it through. I mean, I've thought it through. Then the other thing is, so the surfaces need to be relatively smooth, right? So you can sand those surfaces. And then uh, once you get down to, you know, 200 grit or or whatever's the... What's what's the highest grit sandpaper that you can reasonably get, Nick? Well, actually, it it goes way beyond sandpaper. You get into polishing compounds. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, Uh, short of polishing compounds. Oh, Um, I don't know. Several hundred, 600, 600 grit. Okay, so. It's up there, yeah. So so I get 600 grit, and then the last thing, you know, once I'm down to 600 grit, you know, you just hit it with a blowtorch, and that melts that surface just enough. I mean, I've done that. Fire polishing. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if that's the word, I mean, that, you know, certainly, um, you know, I'm pioneering where there is a whole lot of, of, um, uh, technology that people have already, <laughs> already yeah, done. Yeah, I was going to say, you're, you're pioneering in, in, in known territory. Long ago explored territory. Right. <laughs> Right. Well, I, yeah. There's no more. There's territory. no more white on the map. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but but it's my first time in, right? So sure. Um, you know, if if you so, you to... want to discover for yourself how bad plastic is as as a right. lens material, sure. and that's fine, and that's that's yeah. completely valid. I'd also recommend, however, um, homemade glass could be a, another excellent way to get way down the fidelity curve, um, and. If you, you found it for yourself, the fidelity if you found your, if you found for yourself a small kiln, a little uh, a little hobby kiln, and they're often available pretty cheap, you can fuse or slump glass uh, at home. You don't need sophisticated equipment to just get glass to melt. You do have to figure out how to let it cool very slowly over, depending on how thick it is, you know, over days or even weeks. So you just need a way to turn the thing down gradually over time. 
so that it'll anneal and the glass won't be uh, fragile. Um, and or you could work with Pyrex, which can take all sorts of abuse. Uh, but 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 what I'm trying to get to is that you could m basically make a mold and melt some glass into it in in a little kiln, and then polish it a little and have a, certainly a, you know a way to make your own lenses. So sure, um, I you know part of the deal is um, uh, what a, what the financial. Um, elements are for something like that you know uh certainly uh, having to uh you know purchase more equipment and uh and go through a learning process and you know and burn my hand um and do all those all those things that it would take you know or i can use some of the equipment that i already have because i have so a hammer and i want to <laughs> everything looks like everything's looking like a nail yeah, right yeah. okay and, and that's the the kind of um that's the the theme I, of the day, right? You know, right? Again, but I, I don't I don't see that um, struggling with a three D printer is any harder than struggling with a little pottery kiln. I, I, right? I, you know, okay. if anything, it, it almost might add an extra level of complexity. But sure, but whatever. Sure, absolutely. So, okay, so uh, let's talk about uh, the barrels. Um, now, you talked earlier about. Um, the different expansion and contraction due to humidity and temperature uh, of mm -hmm. different materials. This is where it is crucial. Right. Um, is, is in those uh, lens barrels. So, um, you know, I, and I, I'm going to, I'm going to turn it over to you for, for that. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, traditionally they're made of metal, which is relatively stable and precise uh, but now more modern lenses use more and more plastic. Um, so there, there's room for both, I would say. Uh, the place where I think it's, it's the jury's out on helicals. I've used all plastic 3D printed helicals that work fine. And I've used metal ones that work well. And I've used metal ones that are bad. And I've used plastic ones that are bad. So I think the design is the most important part there. Um, but metal has the edge when it, it comes to durability. So there's a lot of advantages in using uh, at least some metal parts. In uh, And, you know, something like a helical can easily be purchased very inexpensively. So you don't have to build everything from scratch if you don't want to. Um, I still come down strongly on the side of being very happy to use ready-made parts when they're already available and, and do the job they, you know, they're supposed to do. Uh, for me to develop a working helical as opposed to spending $20 on one, you know, from China, it, it doesn't necessarily make sense. Uh, however, uh, I've seen people make pretty good ones and there are reasons why it would maybe make sense sometimes. Um, to make one out of uh, plastic or some other material, but I, I would lean towards building my lenses out of, uh, you know, parts metal and and red and ready-made parts. That would be my inclination. Um, how about you? What are you thinking? I, I see I, that you already put together a plastic uh, lens. Yeah. Recently, or plastic uh, body for a lens. Right. Well, um, uh, what, one of the things I'm working, well, we'll talk about that when, when we get to, uh, what we're doing. 
Um, yeah, it, but it's not an adjustable lens. Um, right. It, it's a static <clears throat> lens. It's a single uh, hyperfocal uh, setup. At least that's the plan. I'm not there yet. Um, so I have to uh, to really do some fine tuning um, uh, on on where it sits. Um, uh, but. Um, I, I, I think I'm with you entirely, um, with, uh, for me, you know, I've got an M65 helical sitting right here. Um, and, uh, what's nice about these is that they're threaded, um, on both ends. So, um, you can thread in whatever holder you want, um, into into the end of it and then you can screw on uh the um the helical itself onto a body and i mean it's a connection in and of itself that is just it's just simple and yeah they're 20 and, bucks. and it's precise from, and it, it always falls in it, you know it always tightens yeah it always tightens up to the same point and the same dimension and you know there's there's not a lot of fighting the other thing is i found that um RAF camera in in uh, somewhere in i guess it's in moscow it's a company that makes a bunch of parts that go with those helicals uh-huh. so um M65 lens boards that will screw in one end of your helical that they they make ones for you know odd and double odd shutter sizes they make a number 1 shutter size they make m42 size they make m39 size so there are all like ready-made lens boards that can just screw right onto one of those helicals and at the other end they make several bayonet mounts that can just screw right on so the same lens and helical could be attached to a number of different kinds of cameras already just you know sure as as it's uh, provided and so that's very useful um one of the things that i will say um you know for uh, the M65, I mean, it, all you have to do is print a 65 millimeter disc and mm-hmm. thread it in, you know, uh, right, you might exactly. have to heat up the material the first time, uh, to get a good thread on it. Um, right. So either whether you make it yourself or buying it, uh, off the internet, there's a quick and easy way to make connections that comes, you know, inherently with that, which is nice. And, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm with you, um, uh, let let machinists do that. Although um, you know the OG has its uh, Camerodactyl OG has uh, its own helical that I think is great. Yeah, and actually we'll get to that because th- there's a there's a couple of I've thought of some great uses for it. But I wanted to add one more thing while we're talking about this. Uh, I haven't found from that same source an M65 mounting plate, so it's just a disc of a little bit thicker metal with the M65 thread so you can screw a helical into it or a lens board, you know, either one. And it has four holes for mounting it with by means of screws or bolts to any kind of camera body. And so that I'm going to standardize on that. I'll just make camera bodies with those four holes and then I can use this same mounting plate moving oh, around I see what you're saying. from one camera to another or, you know, or permanently install it, whatever. But it it's a super convenient because it, it means I can then connect these M65 helicals to a wooden body, a plastic body, a metal body, any body, just by putting the four holes in the right place. Right. So, yeah, it's very useful. Okay, so let's <laughs> move on to Film Advance. Um, 
so again, we have, uh, with film advance, we have a bunch of ready-made options. We have, um, the, the two by three and four by five graph lock, uh, elements. Um, you know, uh, so we have tons of roll film and sheet film backs for each one of those. Um, yeah, there's lots of existing ones is what you're getting at. Right, um, right. There's but, also... there, but there's also building from scratch, which yes. you've done a number of times. And and then you come down to the choices between, you know, uh, various kinds of measuring devices or knobs or red windows or all the other right. things we've discussed in the past. Yeah. And I guess what I feel about Film Advance is that there are a lot of different ways, and I've seen people make them all out of wood, all out of plastic, all out of, you know, metal... Uh, but it turns out to be one of the most important parts of a camera. If the film isn't flat, everything else you're doing is basically you're just throwing it away. <laughs> right. You you can have the fanciest lens in the world, and if you're pointing it at a you know a bent piece of film, it's going to give you a crummy result. So it's it's not to be uh, the the film uh, supporting system is is actually quite important. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, now, one of the things that I, uh, uh, I was just talking with Ethan yesterday or Monday or someday and, um, the, uh, uh, we were talking about the idea of keeping film flat. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the, there are a couple of different ways that you can do it. I'm, I'm thinking specifically with 120 film, uh, though 35 millimeter film, uh, has the advantage of having, the uh the sprocket areas w- that we generally don't shoot so you can you know use a film gate that uh that's considerably further into the film um for a, a more stable uh image now 35 millimeter also you know is known to cop and it's known to curl um but um back with the with the 120 film uh, you know, uh, we have this idea. So, uh, 120 film is, is 60 millimeters across. And, uh, at 60 millimeters, we, you know, we talk about a six by six camera. Well, it's usually 56 millimeters by 56. Uh, uh, but there's no reason that you can't go in a couple more millimeters to stabilize your film. Um, and uh, and you just use a very narrow opening, uh, as yeah, opposed sure. to actual, you know, spring sprung pressure. You know, uh, you know, pressure with with the spring back. Um, yeah, you know, pressure, pressure plate. Right, a pressure plate. I I don't think that there's any reason why you why we really have to go to that fifty six millimeter size if we take it in two millimeters on the top, two millimeters uh, on on the bottom, um, uh, you know, then you're at 52 millimeters, uh, and you just do a 52 millimeter left to right. You know, uh, one of the things that that does is if you're using a film advance, that's not, um, as precise as some other film advances, it gives you a little leeway. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, I, I, I don't, you know, sure. Let's use all the film we can. But there's no reason to come in, you know, if we're going to get a better picture, we're going to get a flatter piece of film by making 
you know, uh, film gate that's just a little bit smaller. And I'm yeah, talking just a little sure. bit, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, think about how many cameras you have. This is something that I've been uh, observing quite a bit. Um, that when you scan a picture along the bottom of the frame, which means that it would be the top of the film gate when it's shot, because everything is, mm-hmm. you know, left to right, top to bottom inverted, um, it comes much closer to the sprocket holes on the, you know, as it goes through the camera, the top of the image or the top of the, the film is much closer to the sprocket holes or the image is closer to the sprocket holes than it is on um, the other side. And, um, you know, sometimes I get, because uh, I, I like to have a little bit of the the non-image area around uh, the image when I scan. It, you know, there are times when I'm bringing in a little bit of sprocket hole when I don't want to bring in a sprocket hole. And, I wonder if that if somehow got to do with gravity and yeah. how when you load load the film it's it if there's any lower. play at all it's it's yeah. going to start low and yeah. so if you loaded the camera upside down you might get the opposite effect. Yeah, right, exactly. So um you know one of it's so it, it's one of those things where you uh you, you know there's I I think maybe backing off just a little bit might be good for your final image. Well, I've noticed uh, looking really carefully at old cameras that the design of the film gate matters a lot, and some of them are much better than others. So a lot of cheap old folding cameras have a very rudimentary film gate that's basically just a a rectangular hole and the film goes across, and there may or may not be a pressure plate, but those uh, cameras, I think, often have a fairly soft uh, right. Not the best film advance, but I'm looking at some of the old Zeiss, uh, Iconta cameras. They have these really carefully figured out, uh, the film gates will have these little tiny bumps all along the edge so mm-hmm. that they can grip the f- edges of the film all the way across the gate. But because there are these little tiny bumps, they don't create a lot of friction, um, and I think that maybe they add extra grip because they're reducing the amount of area, but making sure that every few millimeters there's something grabbing the film. And those, they, it took some, you know, quite a bit of extra trouble to design and stamp out these film gates with the, with the little bumps all along the edges. But I noticed that they hold the film much flatter and the camera seems much, much sharper. It, but it's not the lens. It's the film gate that's a better design, especially with a great big six by nine negative. You know, it's, it needs to be held in place. And there isn't the best tension on those, <clears throat> those old knob wine cameras don't generate, you know, a, a lot of tension. Um, there, there's some resistance in the, in the feeding reel and, you know, in the take up reel that will help. And there's a one way ratchet on the take up reel that helps create some tension. But I don't think that's that effective compared to, the actual design of the gate. That's what really matters. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There, uh, one of the things that are, is a hallmark of, uh, the later film SLRs that were autofocus, um, is that they got very, very square, very, very sharp edges when they shot. Whereas some earlier, as you said, you would get kind of a fuzzy edge. And that's just saying to me that, the um the film gate is a little bit 
further from the film when, uh, you know, as the image is shot. Mm-hmm. And some of, you know, I mean, I've said this before is one of the things I like about old cameras is that, you know, even if you have three different uh, examples of the same camera, some of those old ones, you know, they've had so much film put through them. There are little notches and little, mm-hmm. little scratches in, in the edges that give that personality. And I really like that uh, element. Uh, I really like that personality. Uh, yeah, and some of those so. things don't seem don't seem connected to flatness. Like I have some cameras, the old ones that hold the film nice and flat, but create you know out of square, blurry edged, strange frames because right. yeah, as you're describing, the, the gate is a little funny, or sometimes even bits of leather hanging in the in the way or whatever right. you know that create this funny funny frame. But it it's a separate issue from how how flat the film is. So. Yeah, and also we skipped over one other thing, which is focusing elements. And we talked about helicals, but of course there's also bellows and rack and pinion and, uh, you know, pirate telescope and all sorts of other ways of of uh, adjusting focus. Um, so there are a lot of different mechanisms there that have advantages and disadvantages. Sure, absolutely, and they, and they definitely need to be uh, acknowledged and, um, and, and kept in the lexicon, shall we say, uh, of, of what we do. Yeah. We're used to like the convenience of helicals and, and they're nice and compact, but there's tremendous advantages to the old bellows, uh, systems where you move the entire lens back and forth instead of, uh, individual elements. There's, there's a big technical advantages to that. And also from a construction point of view, it's a very simple way to make a camera if you just have, you know, a, a light proof flexible bellows and you can simply move the two ends of the camera back and forth. That's pretty easy to engineer. And uh, and the other part about that is once you uh, when you have movable elements within a lens, uh, those movable elements can get out of adjustment with each other as opposed right. to uh, if you have the fixed elements and you're just moving the whole lens, um, you, right. uh, you, you have a, a much more stable system. And then of course it makes it easy to, to start playing around with the separate movements of film and, and lens for, you know, for the sort of a whole large format style of shooting. But I think that I'm kind of looking at, at, at a compromise version of that. I've been thinking about making mini bellows so that you could essentially make a tiny little bellows that does the same thing a helical does, but doesn't make a big saggy camera, you know? So if you could picture, especially for say a a really wide angle lens on a, on a very short, flat camera body would be fun to just be able to put the lens on a little stubby bellows that just gave it this small amount of necessary adjustment for focusing and maybe a little bit of lens movement, but isn't, but could be this small self-contained unit even you know on a little removable lens board for instance um I, i'm going to try that I, I think it could be an interesting compromise does that make sense kind of yes, like a mini I, a little I, a little miniature for instance you could easily fabricate one out of uh a uh you know the old uh, macro bellows so right it, those are big and bulky but if you just if you basically sawed off the front of one and just used a short amount of bellows and set it up on it on the front of a camera, you could make 
um, a much more compact focusing device sure. out of it. Yeah. Sure. So, Ethan Moses of Camerdactyl mailed us each uh, a copy of his new camera for testing and review purposes. So, I, I feel extraordinarily official for the first time, at least <laughs> in relation to cameras. <laughs> and um, I was excited uh, to have this opportunity, but I, I'm even more excited now that the camera's in my hands because it's great. I really like this thing. It's a, it's a big, chunky plastic uh four by five hand camera but having said that it's very light and easy to hold in one hand uh and it's very sturdy and then to my ex extra excitement the precision of the parts is really impressive the way the film holder fits the way the cold shoes work is exactly the way you'd want them to be. You know, everything fits snugly, nothing's wobbly, but nothing's a force fit either. It's really well made. Um, there are parts that are screwed together, but he he used bolts with a nut and bolt arrangement. And I notice it looks like he's using even dissimilar metals. It looks like he's got a regular iron nut and a stainless bolt, which is a, a very smart because you won't get galling. You won't get uh the uh screw getting jammed in the nut permanently when you which can happen if you use a stainless nut on a stainless bolt so there's a lot of thought that went into these and uh they it seems very well made um and it's it's a kind of camera that I'm really interested in working with and I have a mercury version of this which is much more flexible in that I can you know change its length and use different lenses but that also makes it um you know, a little bit wobblier, and it, it, it's it's not as sturdy as a one-piece body like this. Um, the other thing that's different about this is that it's got a big fat helical on it that's just designed for the one lens. Uh, mine is set up for a, a 135 millimeter Optar lens off my dad's old Crown Graphic, and um, uh, mine's set up for uh, a 90 f/8 Super Angulon. One of the things about this helical that's different is that there's a there's a locking knob on it. So there's a set screw with a great big knob that allows me to, if I want, set the focus at a certain hyperfocal and then tighten up the screw and lock it so that I could then just shoot um, the camera set, you know, at a, at a stop down and not worry about focusing. And that's a really nice detail that I don't have to look and check my focus scale. I can just set it where I want it, tighten it up. There's ground glass on the back for focusing. Um, I'm really surprised at how well that works in a hand camera. I've never really tried ground glass focusing in a hand camera before, and it works surprisingly well, unless it maybe if it's very bright and sunny, it, it would be hard to see. Um, but I have, I have a loop that's like a, called a hood man loop. That is a black plastic loop that shades the light out um, and has elastic. So I can just snap it onto the back, put my eye up, and it'll sh show me a sharply focused view of the ground glass, which is also shaded. 
So that seems to work pretty well just for like hold it up to your eye, focus it, and then, uh, you know, maybe use the separate optical viewfinder for framing um, because then you don't have the upside down and backwards effect. Um, right. But it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's a really fun camera and I'm, I'm definitely excited to be uh, shooting with it soon. One of the things that's nice about these uh, are the colors. What what are your colors? Uh, it's orange and gray on a black body. Yeah. So gray, okay, yeah, so we... an or- orange accents and a gray helical on a black body. And I think he, right. they're meant to be our official homemade camera podcast colors. Yes, absolutely. So uh, make sure you order, when you order one of these, uh, you order those colors. And, um, okay, so uh, I don't have a loop. Uh, because this really truly is my first four by five camera. Um, so I, I'm not, uh, actually that's not true. I had a four by five camera, uh, back in the nineties when I couldn't afford it. Um, right. And, uh, so I didn't, I didn't end up with much in the way of good results. Do you have some film holders? holders? Yes. Yeah. I have two film holders, uh, which I think is enough. well, no, it isn't enough. And somebody gave me a giant, <laughs> a huge box full of them. Uh-huh. So really, if you need some, okay. I'll send them to you. The, the reason I say it's not enough is because this is a this is a camera that's meant to shoot. You're supposed to be shooting fast and happy with this thing. Um, four frames may not be enough. Um, and if you're starting to shoot paper and that kind of thing, yeah. uh, you might as well have, you know, a, a bunch of them preloaded and available yeah. if, if you're... If you're out shooting, I, yeah. I think this camera is going to become addictive. Yeah, and... yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right on that. Um, and I did figure out uh, a way of pre-flashing um, the film. This is completely aside from our subject, but uh, pre-flashing paper is, you know, helps the the sensitivity, or it helps even out the contrast. Is uh, is the idea of pre-flashing? Um, and, uh, I have a, a, one of those light tablets and, mm-hmm. um, all I do is, uh, uh, you know, all the plan is, is, is just stick the camera lens down on that light tablet and fire it off at, you know, one sixtieth of a second, uh, for paper. Um, and that pre-flashes, right? Um, right, or, or I guess you could point it at the sky or something, yeah. Right? Yeah, and, yeah, uh, well, I'm just thinking about, you know, consistency. So if I pre-flashed mm-hmm. a set, you know, before I went out, um, then they would all have that. And then I can, uh, you know, if I know, hey, I've pre-flashed it, this, I'm going to try pre-flashing that at that, you know, that type of thing. But, uh, okay, so, um, there are a couple of things, um, you know, it's... Ground glass is not good in bright light. Um, I do have, um, you know, another um, view camera that has, you know, it's the two and a quarter by three and a quarter um, uh, baby graph lock. And, um, and I made a, a camera uh, for that system uh, as well. Um, the problem is, you know, it's way too bright. So, yeah, so the so a dark cloth really works. I mean, that's the uh, traditional method. Forget a dark method. cloth. Forget a dark cloth. Yeah. Think about 
I'm going to take you, you try one. I, now I'm going to take you back to the 1960s, the end of the 1960s. I'm going to take you to the Star Starship Enterprise. And um, think about... No, you're not. <laughs> yes, I am. Yes, I am. Okay, so think about Spock. Spock goes over and he looks down that tube. Or, or uh, for those of you who are sports fans, what the NFL used to use um, uh, when they had, you know, like a, a television as opposed to a tablet. Um, they, uh, you know, uh, essentially, if you take a rectangular... Um, uh, chim, you know, essentially a chimney, uh, but for two eyes. Well, that's um, what the graph, that's what the speed graphic and crown graphic had. They had a fold out, fold out, um, right? Exactly. Well, I'm going to just little, three... little eye shade that you know yeah. surrounds the ground glass. Yeah. Well, I'm going to just 3D print a um, a, a little eye shade that'll fit. And part of the part of the deal is that the film holders and the uh, ground glass. Um, are held on with, you know, essentially paracord, right? Um, or maybe it's not paracord, but elastic cord. Um, and there's no reason why I can't fit some, you know, I can't design something that'll fit right under those. Oh, sure. And, um, and so you look at that and. Yeah. And if you look at some of the old cameras, um, the, the shape of that could be even uh designed to fit up against your face so right yeah that's that's like the old stereo optic and viewers or whatever right you know exactly and that's a perfect thing to 3d print in fact it's going to look like the camera is pointing in two directions when you're all done right um right yeah so so you can just flip that under and it's not going to add too much to the tension um so i'm i'm going to just have to figure out how to how to work it with this system and then, um, uh, and then the other thing is, I don't have a loop, but what I do have is jeweler's glasses. You know, those yeah. little, that little sure, headband. The flip down. Yeah, those work well. Yeah, and um, and in fact, actually, I was uh, I just brought them in because I had the had the OG here at work, um, and uh, and I had the jeweler's glasses at home, and so I just brought them in today and checked it out, and my God, great. You know, yeah. Um, so, so I've done all of those methods, mm-hmm. and what I've found is that they all work up to a point. But when you really want critical focus and it's really bright out, then putting the cloth over your head really does work. And okay. anything works. I mean, like a, sure. an old black windbreaker is fine. You know, you just need something to to create a little darkness around the ground glass, and then you really can see a lot better. And it, and it matters. Uh, if you're going to, tr- maybe if you're trying to figure out, you know, your depth of fo- field exactly, you know, if you're trying to stop down a little and see what's going on, you, then you're going to really need, um, and also any lenses that are on the slow side, you're going to need that. Uh, uh, one of the nice things about using, uh, lenses designed for the old press cameras is they were made quite fast. You weren't meant to be shooting at F 4.7, but it really helps to focus, uh, with a you know with a pretty wide open lens and then stop down to shoot and as soon as you get to some of the slower lenses like an f8 forget it you're going to need the cloth period you know <laughs> right it, you, right yeah but but yeah for for the old optar lenses and some of those were pretty fast and and they're easy to work with large format lenses um boy they're getting 
Um, they're getting ridiculously cheap when you compare them to their sale price. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I don't know what, I mean, probably, um, you know, 150 super angulons, uh, right now, I think they're well under a hundred bucks on eBay. Um, uh, let me, uh, I'll, I'll take a look right now, but, um, but my, my point on that is, um, is that we can get some incredibly good lenses and this can be a, an, uh, a very good economical camera, um, for almost nothing. And, you know, uh, so here, yeah. Okay. So the, they're the 50 millimeter super angulons maybe are, uh, a little bit more expensive than I thought. Uh, oh wait. Well, it's all going up. Yeah. Everything's going up. Um, Oh, maybe there aren't super angulons in 150. I did see 150 in, from that vintage recently. I think uh, KEH or somewhere had one, and it was it might have been a regular angulon, not a super. So it might yeah. have been an even old older lens, um, which would be more, even more appropriate for a hand camera because they'd be smaller and often faster. Uh, yeah, for some of the some of those. Right. Okay. So. Um, uh, yeah, okay, so they're in the $150 range. I was just thinking they're plentiful. The 90 F8 um uh can be had anywhere between, you know, uh 100 bucks and $1200 depending on Right. You know, or if you don't mind a little it. fungus, you yeah, get right. down to the 30 $40. Right, yeah. right, exactly. <laughs> so, um uh oh okay so it's not a, it's a simar um that is the 150 um it's not an angulon um but you know uh there are you know okay 150 millimeter large format lens is not 150 millimeters it's just slightly wide isn't that about a 40 it's yeah it's kind of it's an it's an Pretty much a perfect normal lens perfect normal. for four yeah. by five okay. uh, format, and one thirty five is a, a little bit wider. It's maybe closer to what would be a thirty five millimeter mm-hmm. field of view on a on a regular thirty five camera. So anything from I'd say one twenty to one fifty is a good, slightly wide to normal range for a camera like that. Um, it's tricky when you start to get long because a hand camera, you know, you already have right. a narrow depth of field as it is with <laughs> with a large format lens. And it's it starts to get less kind of, of a casual to use camera as you get into longer focal lengths. And then wide gets crazy wide really fast. So, you know, a 65 millimeter lens on a large format camera is an extremely wide lens. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I... I think 150, 135, 120, those are great places to start. Um, and then that's, that brings up uh, one of the things I really like about this camera. I Mine is set up for 135, but I think I could put a 150 on it if I added just a slight extension and opened up the hole a little bigger to prevent vignetting. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting to me about that idea is that the, the helical on this can be locked in place. And so... This is something I've always wanted on a, on a large format hand camera is the ability to 
very precisely adjust the starting point for infinity focus and then lock it Um, because then the camera can be adjusted easily to get the perfect infinity focus starting point Um, and then adding another helical for the you know for focusing closer would mean that you could have a camera with an infinity stop and you could put a lens on that wasn't exactly right and just adjust it perfect Mm-hmm. and go and i think that's really appealing i mean at this point i have n- three different 90 millimeter lenses because they just seem to accumulate and they all have a slightly different flange back difference mm-hmm. distance so i can't set up a camera and just switch lenses i have to readjust it every single time right and that's pain in, that's a pain in the neck with the mercury because i use shims and spacers and you know i have to get it just so so i, I have to check on it whereas uh if I had basically two helicals, one for adjusting infinity focus and another for focusing the lens, you could you could just you know quickly set it to inf- to infinity, lock it, and then work from there every time. And and I think that would be really a cool way to set this camera up too. One of the things that I like about this kind of setup is um, you know the ability to to make modifications uh, on it um, relatively easily. I mean, with with a three D printer, yeah, it's certainly you know that's that's one of the one of the the elements that you need. But the um, it, you're able to um, just make uh, the accessories that you want to make. Um, you know, based on, on this one design. So, uh, you know, one of the first things that I did, and I'll eventually tell Ethan that, uh, uh, Ethan this, uh, he'll probably know it by the time I, um, uh, by the time the show comes out, hopefully. Uh, and that is that I made a mistake on my lens. I have, uh, as I said, a super angulon, uh, 90 F8. But it was kind of, uh, it, it's in a shutter that is different from the standard. And it's in a uh, double zero shutter as opposed to a single zero shutter. Um, so you need, a, you need a smaller hole. Yeah, I needed a smaller hole, which I actually just three, 3D printed yesterday. So, um, but it is. So just, you're just going to add on a little uh, plate on the front? Yeah, no, I just, yeah, essentially an additional spacer. Um, Now, this lens also has uh, the problem that it, it, you know, I got this for for very cheap. I I think it was $70, somewhere in that range. Um, But the the thread for the, um, uh, for the cable release, uh, the thread, what am I trying to say? The holder for the cable release was broken off. So this doesn't have a, a cable release. So like right now I'm working with the focus. I have it taped, you know, I have the lens, the shutter taped to in the open position because it doesn't have time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've, uh, you know, I've, I'm going to, you know, build a little piece that will work, um, uh, with the lens and, you know, uh, and, and put that, um, shutter release through. Um, it, but it, it, you know, it's, 
one of the things that I like about this is it's just kind of begging for those accessories. And I'm not saying that it's an incomplete camera in any way. Uh, what I'm saying is that it's just kind of begging for me to, to play with it even more because of the materials, because of how playful it is, because, um, you know, it's lightweight. It's, um, it, it's an easy it, little camera to simple. hold on to. Right. It's very um, simple. Yeah. It's very simple that, you know, it's something where I, where I go, yeah, I can add on to that. I can, I can work on it. Uh, one of the, you know, as I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, one of the things I'm going to work on is a roll film back. And I was, uh, uh, you know, um, I was thinking about, okay, so I have four inches of film gate to work with, right? I have four inches of that film gate. Um, so, uh, who's to say that I can't put, um, uh, you know, a 70 millimeter film back. Now here, I'm going to tell you about my 70 millimeter film back. It is not for 70 millimeter film. It's for two rolls of 35 millimeter film that'll shoot over the sprockets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, it, it, it'll be, you know, it's a little novelty thing. You know, it's certainly not something that, uh, I would expect to do a lot of photography with, you know, but I think it could be a whole lot of fun. And, um, so I think that, um, uh, you know, I think I'm going to, uh, going to develop that. Um, and I, and I, one, one thing you could do is take an old film, uh, sheet film holder and use that as the base basis right. of it right. so it's already got a light it's already got a dark slide and if you just take the back dark slide out um and cut a hole in it and glue on whatever your your film holder is you know it's already ready to fit everything's ready to go right i do think though um uh i i do think the way i'm i'm planning on setting this up i already have paper um around the uh the helical around this the center of the helical and uh i think i'm gonna go and just do marks and just scale focus um at least that's my plan to start with uh, it's always good to, it's always good to have that option yeah um, yeah and and that's a, a an excellent idea and it's also good to sort of force yourself to see what the range looks like um on it and so, for instance, my lens happens to be a little bit short. Uh, the flange back distance is a little bit short on the, the 135 that I have. So it infinity focus occurs in the middle of the helical range. So I'm only able to use half of the range of the exist, you know, the helical on the camera. But fortunately, it's got a nice wide range, so that still focuses in pretty close. Um, and... I'll, I've already marked the, you know, where infinity focus is so I can go right to that and then, you know, get to the starting point right away. Um, but I'm telling you, I have surprised at how easy this ground glass is to work with. It's, it's good. It's a good piece of ground glass. And, you know, if it's on just a normal cloudy day in this part of the world, I can actually just hold the camera up and focus by looking at the back of it, of the camera, which I was surprised by. I mean, it's, it's easier than I expected. Because I've messed around with a number of large format cameras, and a lot of times the gl- ground glass is hard to see. Um, this is just a plain, simple, straightforward piece of ground glass, but it works really well. Yeah, and it's um, uh, laser cut plexi 
I'm not sure what he's done to frost it. Um, I oh. assume it's just sanded it. It's um, easy to focus, whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Absolutely. And again, uh, durable um, uh, and, uh, and, and robust. So remember when we were talking about how plastic um, is, or how materials in general respond to climate? Um, so this camera was assembled in New Mexico and then mailed to the Pacific Northwest. And when I got it, the helical was very, very, very stiff. And I, I asked Ethan about it, and he said, well, try just loosening up the screws a little bit that, that clamp the parts of the helical together. Mm -hmm. Because in, when you change climates, the plastic's going to behave differently. And I did that, and it loosened right up to where, you know, I have, it's in other words, the amount of dampening at the focus is adjustable. And I could adjust it to, to move easily, you know, in my climate. And that, that was also something that you could, you know, it could have been a problem, but it turned out to be a feature, basically. <laughs> is right. that uh, it's, it's an adjustable amount of tension on the helical, which is nice. On episode 54 of the Classic Lenses podcast, which we recommend, um, there was an interview um, with the person who's heading up the Ponif camera, and it's P-O-N-F, and um, uh, the, the man's name is uh, Raffaello Palandri. I'm sure mm -hmm. I butchered it. Um, and, uh, and the project that he is heading up, this project, the Ponuf camera is a camera design that is, uh, made to swap out the, the back from a film back to a digital back. And it is, you know, it's essentially a 35 millimeter camera. Um, and depending on what options you choose, it can have either an APS-C sensor or it can have a full, uh, full frame sensor. Um, and, uh, it really caught my attention because he's, he's not working at the level that we were talking about. We were, you know, er earlier in the show, we were talking about, you know, how successful we would want any of our projects to be. Um, uh, he's working on making a commercial, uh, commercially viable product. He wants to make a finished camera that is very similar in a lot of ways to uh, a traditional factory made camera, you know, that it's a, it's a, it's a finished done deal, uh, not a homemade kludge job like a lot of my cameras are but but the thing is about that about that is that it puts you in a tricky place and he's trying to find a middle ground so he wants to be able to make components of the camera on demand by 3d printing them so he wants that flexibility of the of the more kind of custom cameras but he also wants a, a standardization of parts that allows him to mass produce uh 
you know, at our, at a real commercial level. Um, and that's a lot. He's asking for a lot. He's, he's setting a very high bar for himself with this camera design. He wants all of this to be, it's very technical. There's going to be, uh, you know, uh, fully integrated tablet kind of, uh, basically you can shoot tethered with this thing. Um, and I do want to point out that when, when the whole, camera was described i realized that this kind of camera does exist already in the medium format world if you have tons of money to spend so there are really you know fancy digital backs that'll snap right onto a medium format film camera that's something that exists so you're talking but, about like the leaf back for the rz67 that type of thing exactly and also that uh there are uh there are some ex exotic swiss made cameras that even use um, tablets and phones as a viewing screen and essentially you're shooting tethered with those so these things exist but they're you know extremely expensive i mean thousands and thousands tens of thousands of dollars uh, and they're large larger bigger film bigger cameras and what he's trying to do is bring that kind of uh, modular uh, camera that combines a true digital camera with a true film camera in one body to 35 millimeter format and size. And that's a good idea. I think it's a really mm -hmm. good idea. Um, and he's trying to keep it modular enough that uh, other, for instance, he's interested in other people building parts that are compatible with it. He's not, it's meant to be kind of an open sourcey sort of thing, but yet he still wants to produce, a, you know, a magnesium bodied, solid, impressive uh, camera that you would, you might mistake for, you know, the a product of one of the um, big camera companies. So it's, it's a, it's an ambitious project. Yes. One of the things that I was really excited about is um, he is talking about making it, um, you know, a magnesium body, but that magnesium body is 3d printed um, by the HP um, Hewlett Packard 3d printers. It, they print metal. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I've really liked to see that, like sort of seeing is believing. Yeah. I know that they can print metal, quote unquote metal, but I also know that it's quite different. Uh, the metal that comes out of a printer is quite different than from, the metal that uh, might come out of a forging or a stamping yeah. process. So it, it, it sounds like it could be really cool, but I wouldn't assume it would be exactly the same as a traditional metal body. It's going to be a little different, probably. You'll have to design for this, the different, just like any 3D printing, you'll have to design for the differences in right. the, in the, uh, metallurgy and the production method. Yeah. And, and, um, one of the, one of the things that the 3D printing allows him to do is to offer multiple form factors for the body based on what you want to do with the camera. Um, now, uh, if you go to uh, their website, it's ponfcamera.com, um, then you, you can see some of the examples, some of the, the, the prototype cameras that they have. Um, and it, they're not really showing what you would expect a final polished uh you know branded and stamped and you know uh uh camera body um but i i really like the idea of coming up with some different 
uh, body shapes. Now he was talking on the, uh, the lensless, not the lensless, the classic lenses podcast, um, that, um, that they were thinking about a, uh, a square box, kind of like a Hasselblad body. Um, and they're thinking of, uh, something, you know, that looks akin to, uh, modern digital SLR body. Uh, it would be, I, I find it interesting because those are, those are widely different, um, form factors. And that form factor means that you shoot your camera in a completely different way. Uh, so, uh, so I think that that's, that's kind of, uh, an interesting element, uh, uh, to it. Um, now one of the, one of the questions was asked, um, that I thought was, was kind of interesting, uh, was, you know, how do you see this being used? And, uh, he described a system where, uh, say you're on assignment, um, for, you know, a photojournalistic assignment. Uh, you shoot on film, go back to your hotel room, develop the film in the hotel room, and then scan it with the digital back and send it to your to your editor. And I thought that that was kind of an, an interesting workflow. Um, I, I don't know how effective... Or I, I, you know, I don't know how many people that would be really attractive to, um, but the uh, the other way uh, of working that he was talking about was the idea that you would um, have a digital back and a film back in your uh, in your pocket, and you would just swap them out as you were walking around. Yeah, I think it's a perfectly practical idea. I think it's yeah. a good idea in terms of com uh, simplifying. I mean, what somebody brought up in the interview and what, what occurred to me is I'm one of those people that always carries one of each. I always have a little film camera and a little uh -huh. digital camera almost all the time uh, and swap back and forth between the two. And there's there's not that much difference between doing that and swapping the backs on one camera, but it is a little more compact and, uh, you, you know, less stuff to carry around. And so there's that, uh, it could be an advantage. And if you had two bodies, you could, you could still swap the parts. Um, you know, so, so instead of changing lenses, you could change, you could exchange film backs, for instance, sure. between two bodies. So it, it is more versatile and I think it's appealing. Uh, and, and of course, if you wanted you could swap between two different film backs and all the other advantages. But it, it did also make me think that I've gone through this same thought process. And with my method of construction and my method of shooting, what I came up with instead is a twin lens reflex camera that shoots film and digital simultaneously or separately. Right. So that's the version that I have in mind for myself. And what it shares with his idea is that with the digital part of it and and his would have an EVF mine would probably just you know have a, an LCD screen but the point is or it could be either way it doesn't really matter the point is that you can figure out your exposure do your test shots digitally and then expose the film uh and get it right the first time because you've already done that 
you know, that pre-check with the digital. And when you're using the idea that he has is that since you're using the exact same camera, all the settings really literally just stay the same. As long as your digital set for the same ISO as your film, you just swap and shoot. And it, in a way, it's like the old Polaroid backs that people used to use, you know, to, to set up a, a shot. Same idea. And, and I think that's actually quite practical. And uh, for people who want to shoot film, this kind of thing would turn out to be very useful. There are a lot of people that come down either as film shooters or as digital shooters. I think the number of us that are really, really strongly, like firmly, you know, committed to both, maybe as a smaller number of people, but that could change because I think there, uh, there's a lot of synergy to be found when you combine both technologies and use both of them in a, in a hybrid manner. I, I think it's a practical idea. I do. Uh, and I think it, I think it will be appealing to more people if it was easy for them to do. Right. I agree with that. Uh, I, I agree with that completely. Uh, there were a couple of things that, um, were, uh, were mentioned that, um, I thought were very interesting in the economics and availability of materials issues. Um, one of them, uh, it, probably the most important one is, uh, he was talking about the fact that there's essentially one maker of, uh, shutters right now, and it's Copal. And, um, Copal has, um, it will work with you if you can guarantee one million dollars in orders. To them. That's a lot of shutters. <laughs> That's a lot yeah. of shutters, you know. Right. Um, but, uh, the thing, the thing about it that is, um, most interesting to me is uh, the reason why they, they require that. And there, there are lots of companies that require a minimum order in order for it to, you know, make their, you know, make it, uh, uh, economically feasible for them. Um, but the minimum order has to do with the fact that they have to modify their shutter design to fit and work with your electronics or your, um, or your mechanics. Mm -hmm. And when you, when you figure that they need is, so if, if you're a camera company, you've got three cameras to design, you have to guarantee each one goes to a million dollars in sales. So that is just astounding to me. It's an astounding barrier to, uh, to, uh, medium sized startups. You know, we're, we're, you know, we're micro, uh, mm -hmm. or nano, uh, businesses, right? You know, I mean, we're nothing to them. Um, even if we were to get together and all the camera makers, all the homemade camera makers who are active right now decide that, you know, we all want one shutter or not, you know, one shutter design. We all uh, agree on a, you know, a, a standard for that shutter. Um, we still have to get together and do a million dollars in sales. And, you know, that's a hell of a lot of people. 
Yeah, you, you so would have we to need, we I would think we need to work on you know the DIY shutter solution, right? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That's that's no. fine for someone who wants to produce a lot of cameras, right? But right. No, it doesn't no, work I'm... for you and I. Yeah, and one of the things they mentioned uh, well, that wait, that really wait, 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 stop a second, yeah. because I, okay. I want to finish this, uh, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I want to finish this. The thing that stuck out to me is that Copal doesn't have a generic shutter design. Right. They don't have one that they say, okay, so this is our design. We, I mean, they're modifying their design for each camera. So, or for each, you know, camera manufacturer. So, you know, uh, so I would assume that every um, Canon has, you know, basically the same setup, right? Um, Seems uh, to me you... Seems to me you could reverse engineer that um, in theory, except that maybe the uh, the Canon people would be upset. Right? But yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, could yeah. design a camera that would fit a Canon shutter and then just pull them out. Yeah, I mean, but when then you, you think have to about go buy it, Canon. there's plenty of, of right. cheap digital cameras out there with shutters that probably have a tremendous amount of life left in them. There is, you know? there is that. There's certainly. Once again, we're going on the micro. I'm kind of figuring out a macro. Say you sure. have, say you have a camera that you think you can sell. 10,000 of, you know, mm-hmm. you're not, you know, if you're in the 10,000 camera range, I don't know what a, what a wholesale on a shutter is, but if we figure a wholesale on a shutter is $50, um, you know, you're, you're only halfway to getting Copal to even be interested in you. Yeah. So that's part of what's exciting about the Ponf camera is that yeah. Raffaello is interested in keeping this open. So if he, if he remains in control of this idea and produces this camera, it sounded like he would be willing to make his shutter, uh, the Ponf camera shutter, available uh, to other camera makers. Sure, or so, or so at least he, the, he the has setup. an open yeah. source kind of idea. He he doesn't expect to get rich selling these cameras. He wants to keep film and digital hybrid photography alive. Right. That's his goal. And so if he's able to do this, he may, in fact, be creating that uh, generic shutter that you're wishing for. Yeah. In in other words, he might supply the uh, necessary specs so that a person could build a camera body that would work with his shutter. And that's great. Right. And and I'm just thinking, you know, on the scale of, you know, somebody who sells on Etsy, um, you know, maybe I want to order 10 shutters. Or even uh, 10 Ponf bodies. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, but uh, it, it, that is is something that, that's, you know, 10, yes, I could buy 10, um, you know, uh, EOS 10, um, or, or what am I trying to say, uh, 10D um, uh, cannons that are probably at about 100 bucks a piece. So, you know, I mean, I certainly could do that. Um, but, uh, you know, you're talking about a used shutter that may have, um, half of its life or 80% yeah, of just, its life already And gone. just dissecting, just dissecting yeah. it out of the old camera and getting it in a new one would be right. a lot of, be hard to do. And, and, but this, so anyway, so this is possibly going to become a, a, a you know, a new type of camera with, a possibly a shutter that would be useful. Uh, but I wanted to mention before we 
I forget that they they mentioned another type of shutter which I'd never heard of, which is a an LED shutter. Oh yes, it, it, it's it, essentially. He a, said it was a, LED. A, uh, it's got to be LCD. Oh, LCD. Um, well, what whatever. He it's a, it was an LCD. Yes, absolutely. LCD. So essentially, it's a clear lens that can go opaque or clear uh, based on an electronic input. So instead of a, a blade going in front to to block the light, the this you know this LCD layer goes black uh, and goes clear really really fast as, yes. as a way to control the amount of light. Well, that sounds extremely easy to. Like if you if you came up with the you know the basic parts for that, it sounds like an extremely easy thing to add into a, a camera. I mean, it would just right. be you know just a, a holder for this piece of whatever glass or whatever it is. Uh, now I don't know how available these things are at this point, but it, it sounded like a great way to to come up with a shutter design. But it also brings me back around to where I started, which is that all I really need is a simple shutter that gives me a hand-holdable shutter speed and bulb. And if I had that, I'd be able to make all sorts of cameras and, and be happy to, you know, to work with them uh, as, a, as another kind of starting point for this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, so I just did a um, an LCD shutter. Um, uh, what am I trying to say? Um, web search. And, um, apparently one of the things that he was talking about, the problem was that the voltage was different. Um, but it says three volts, um, on these LCD shutters and (laughs) yeah, right. Um, so, uh, let's see if I can get uh, a price on them. This is, uh, three... 0.78 0.78 inch by 1.89 inch, 96 by 48 millimeters. So a big medium format shutter. And of course I'm at work. Uh, how about this? Large liquid crystal. They call them light valves. How about nice. that? A light valve. I wonder, I wonder how fast they go. Uh, well, um, uh, here, hang on a second. This one here is $7 and 50 cents. <laughs> Seven dollars and fifty cents. That's we may have just solved all our problems. Let's look this yeah. up. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, and um, yeah, okay, so that was that was one here. I'm uh, the one. Uh, I'm at work, and my internet is just oh, it's horrible. But it's um, a, a blackout panel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. Okay. So $7 and 21 cents, um, for the, uh, 96 by 48 millimeter one. Now you obviously have to have a controller. Um, you need some way of controlling these. Um, so Ethan, get on this, would you? Um, yeah. but you know, there's some, uh, I, you're yeah, you, I heard that too. I can't believe that I forgot to bring it up. Um I, that was something that really excited me as a possibility. Um you know, you're already shooting through on a um a, a normal uh digital camera mirrorless or DSLR. Um because they uh are born um susceptible 
susceptible. They're born um, as uh, sensitive to all sorts of uh, frequencies. Um, they uh, usually have sitting in front of them a filter that uh, cuts out ultraviolet and infrared and just just leaves visible spectrum uh, there. And uh, so you're already shooting through a piece of glass. So an LCD piece of glass would be, um, uh, you know, I mean, it's just part of, you know, it's the well, next from the part, sensor, right? sen- sensor could just have an electronic shutter, uh, if, you know, if that's all you had. And the, the point of this camera, though, is that you can swap to a film back. So you need... You need a shutter that works in front of film as well as it. Yeah, a yeah, no, I mean, uh, yeah. And here's another small LCD shutter, four pounds twenty. So, um, you know, I'm just doing really quick searches. Yeah, and, well, as, as long as it gets up to oh, a, a small one allows. Pounds. Yeah, so that would allow a handheld shooting. Then it solves a problem. Um, right. It's, it's and the and the lack of mechanics, the fact that it could all be electronically controlled could be very uh useful to Well, just make... you know, think about uh mirror shake, right? Um mm-hmm. that's completely gone. Now, that's gone with um uh mirrorless cameras, but they still have that moving shutter that entirely solid state uh setup I think is really really interesting. So um, I don't know what the limitations are. I'm guessing that there are some that we're just not not paying much attention to. I just think that there's a possibility here that we really need to explore. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, there's probably a limitation that really keeps us from using these effectively. But... Um, well, maybe. Yeah, right. I mean, maybe. maybe. The thing is that people are used to uh, assuming that you'd need a shutter that does everything from a 2000th of a second to, you know, three minutes or whatever. And, uh, that's, that's a lot. And we don't, I don't necessarily demand that much from a shutter. So it might turn out to be something that works. It's worth a look. And, uh, anyway, that, that's something to keep tinkering with. It's, it seems to be the thing we always come back to, uh, and making this work for, it is mostly important to me for this 135 format camera because that's where you have most lenses are not available with a shutter built in. You know, once right. you get to medium and large format, it's pretty easy to come up with a good shutter uh, that you comes with a lens and you don't have to worry right. about it. But for for these small formats, that's a problem to solve. And, and I guess the other thing I'm going to play with, it, it, I keep coming back to is, is playing with, uh, sh- cameras with an in-body shutter and so- some of those really simple uh, rangefinder cameras almost we you know could just become the film back with shutter and then just change the whole front of the camera to to do other things right. i mean i'm i definitely want to play around more I- i'm still strongly uh prejudice towards the franken camera approach i really like starting with ready-made parts and there are a lot of broken cameras out there to work with so that's going to keep being kind of my specialty uh, but uh, i don't see any problem with using you know the back part of a camera and then completely redesigning the front part or even you know changing the body design 
Um, so I do have some old 35 millimeter, very simple 35 millimeter cameras that I'm thinking of using just for that. Um, just you know, as a as a sort as a shutter and film holder, and then change everything else about it. So Nick, what have you been up to lately? Uh, well, I've, I'm mostly working, uh, but I have been fooling around trying to catch up a little bit on film processing, and uh, I've been playing with the camera that Ethan just sent, um, and I definitely need to shoot it, so that's kind of high on my list, is getting mm-hmm. some 4x5. Um and I've been playing with some parts of cameras that I will get around to building when I have time, just kind of fooling around with them. And uh, that's that's really all I've had time for lately. Um, and the other thing that, that I've done to sort of kind of keep interested is uh, using fooling around more and more with adapted lenses, even on digital cameras. And, and I'm finding the interesting thing. It's It seems to me that with a digital camera, the the single thing that has the most impact on the the way your picture looks is the lens so that's really the deciding factor you you can really have a, a lot of an impact on what your image looks like based on changing lenses around and there is you know the classic lenses podcast is based on the idea that that finding old lenses is is going to be the most kind of creative way to play with a digital camera However, with film cameras, it seems to be completely different. The film is what matters. It, mm-hmm. it almost doesn't matter what lens you've got on, as long as it's reasonably sharp. <laughs> the big impact on your results is going to be what, what film you choose. And that's a really pretty pretty strong difference between the two, um, two ways of working. What bores me about digital cameras is that the images all start to look the same after a while. And... And it's sort of the opposite with film is that it takes a long time for me to get like figure out one kind of film and how to get consistent results out of it. And, you know, it sort of goes in the opposite direction. It's that it's more trying to tame the film than I than I am uh, bored by consistency. (laughs) So 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 with digital cameras, I have been more and more interested in in using oddball lenses and and finding out, you know, how to get um, uh maybe more emotional uh, content into the image by how I take the picture. Whereas with film, I've been um, working more on, you know, processing and workflow to try and get a consistency to, to be able to, to shoot what it is that I want to get a result sure. that, that I planned on getting. Sure. And, um, and that's, you know, that's that uh, uh, knowledge base of anything that we do. Right. Um, you know, it's that, uh, making sure that we are, um, using our materials to the best, you know, using our equipment, uh, to its fullest. Um, so, uh, what I've been doing lately, uh, you know, I'm continuing the lumen boxes. I'm not quite ready to put them up, uh, ready to, ready to sell them. Uh, I have an M42. In fact, I have an M42 ready for you to go or ready to go for you. Uh, 
Uh, I just oh, need cool. to, to get it in the mail. I have an M39. Both of those are working for uh, for the Lumen boxes. Um, I'm now working on one that has a dedicated uh, single element lens. Um, my 3D printer was out of commission for about half a week. Um, it had a um, uh, uh, an ex- not extruder, but the hot end uh, needed to, needed to be rebuilt. And, um, so I am, uh, you know, so I had to, had to work on that. And now I am, uh, uh, back running and I just overnight last night printed a little test for this. Um, this is supposed to be, this is a lens I got from, uh, 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 I'll give you, give you the name as soon as I remember it. It is the, uh, surplus warehouse surplus. Yeah, surplus, surplus shack. That's what it is, and um, uh, uh, it was listed as a forty millimeter focal length. Well, I'm at forty millimeters right now, and that focal is, uh, you know, our part of the deal is uh, maybe I'm wrong with this. Uh, I've got the lens actually sticks out a little bit out of the front it stands a little bit proud of the front of the lens or front so of the you box to, so you have so to maybe, figure out where to measure from yeah uh, right yeah. exactly so if i can push that back just a little bit maybe maybe it is yeah so i uh, i've now put it flush and let's see if i can you know i'm using the tape on the back of this thing uh maybe i can get a little bit closer to to actual unfocal and uh i'm closer uh yeah but it's still not infinity focus infinity focus is more like about 35 on this lens well they may be um, defining focal length differently yeah, so they, if that right. lens is meant to be used by like you know looking at it with your eyeball then you know that might be a different formula for yeah, you've got describing focal yeah. length than than when it's being used to project onto film. Like, eh, I'm not, you know, who knows what they're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So I need to, I need to play a little bit and figure out exactly where that, uh, where that proper focal distance is. And I, and I've got a little, a little test box. I'll put, run it through. Um, and then. So I wanted to ask you, do you, yeah. do you, you're, you were saying you don't have any M42 lenses. Is I have right? one. Yeah. I have a you, Pentacon. Um, 28 millimeter, 2.8. Uh, that sounds like a really useful Zenit. one. So say yeah. it again. That sounds like a really useful lens. Yeah. It might be, might be a, a great one for a lumen box. So yeah. In fact, wanna, in fact, I got, uh, I've, I've shot it once. I shot it on Monday. We're, we're recording here on Wednesday. I shot it on Monday and I just haven't had a chance to, uh, to scan it and put it up, but it got what really looked like a very nice image. Um, and so maybe I'll put that up later today. So you will have seen it in the past. Uh, <laughs> cause we're recording about two weeks ahead of time. We're actually recording on the sixth, which is the day before, uh, our previous episode airs. So we're recording a couple of weeks ahead of time. Uh, but that gives me time to, uh, to edit and stuff like that. So, um, one of the things I talked about, you know, that, that hammer, uh, concept that we were talking about at the beginning. 
You mean um, the thing that I, turns everything into nails. Right, right, exactly. Um, well, one of the things um, I was kind of working on was I was working on this assumption that in order to get the black filament that I use opaque, I had to um, shoot, or excuse me, I had to build it at um, uh, about three millimeters thickness. And um, uh, Todd Schlemmer has this little uh, 3D thing that you can uh, print out. If you go to um, Thingiverse, you can you can find this. And and what it is, it's a little uh, opacity tester. So it's got varying thicknesses, and you know, at the point at which you can get opaque, um, uh, you know, fully opaque uh, print. Is the point, you know, that's the, the minimum thickness that you can use. Well, I was using maybe 20 times the material I needed to use. And so uh, I've started making some things a little bit thinner. Now, um, when you make them thinner, you sacrifice uh, durability and um, rigidity. Um, uh, so I think, you know, maybe this this last one that I built was was too thin. Um, but it, you know, once again, I, I, uh, I need to, I need to really start thinking about the materials that I'm using. Um, mm-hmm. so, uh, I also need to start rethinking the shape of the components. Um, because I'm, you know, I've been working with boxes. Um, right. And, and there's... they don't necessarily print as easily as some of the, a little more sophisticated shapes. Right. Right, exactly. So, so you like what you like curved at corners and edges and instead right. of sharp corners and that kind of thing. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, and you sometimes you you need to build in. Um, and Ethan talked about this a little uh, a little bit when he was on our uh, show. Um, you, you you need to build in methods for the heat to be dissipated. Hmm. Um. So that you don't get a whole lot of curling um, or lifting off of the material from the. That's uh, interesting because there's a there's a parallel thing in foundry work uh, when you pour molten metal into a into a you know uh, a mold. It needs uh, it needs places for the gases to escape to, but it also needs that similar uh, issue of of heat. So if if the metal has to run out into a thin passage. And it'll cool too quickly and plug itself up with it before it fills. And so often you have to put vents so that you'll waste some metal, but it'll let the metal run all the way out to the end of its, uh, you know, same kind of idea. There's a process requirement that you have to pay attention to. So what you're describing in 3D printing is that is that if if there's an area, maybe like a like an appendix or a dead end, um, that it will cool at a different rate and that may cause distortion during the printing, something right, like that. Right. It, um, uh, it starts to pull back. It starts to, uh, you know, so if you can cool from multiple locations, as opposed to cooling the whole item as a single element, it's all going to draw. If it's a single, single element, it's going to draw to the center of that element. But if you mm-hmm. can create different areas that cool at different rates, 
then you can, uh, you know, like say a lattice work kind of thing. Um, then, um, it's not drawing to the center. It's drawing to the center of each one of these little squares or these little uh-huh, diamonds right. or something like that. Right. So, and so, so your like warpage steel, yeah. is much less. Right. It's similar to steel fabrication. Uh, you have to strategize the way you weld things up so that they don't distort as well. Same idea. Well, that's something that there. I wonder if there's much out there about that right now. I mean, this is all pretty brand new. Um, you know, people like Ethan have figured out a lot of this stuff. I wonder if there's a community that, uh, you know, pub- sort of publishes useful information about all this out there that we could discover. Right. Yeah, this is one of the nice ad- advantages of my approach, though. The stuff cooled off long ago. The ready-made parts and pieces of wood and metal. <laughs> all that's done. It's just a matter of cutting and fitting. Hey, Nick, do you have a book for us? Oh, I didn't pick one out uh, specifically for this week. Uh, I mean, I just picked up a couple more on alternative process, and one of them is about a process called gum oil, which is a great name. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's similar to the uh, gum printing that's basically using watercolor paint as the, the main substance. But this uses oil paints. Oh, and okay. it's a it's a process where you you make a you know a, a light sensitive piece of paper and then you bleach it and you coat it with oil paint and there's like multiple steps but you can do a three color process with it if you want and oh. it's not as refined as the gum printing color but it's it looks it looks appealing I think you would like it um, there's it has a real rough and and uh, kind of uh, moody feel. Um, and, and it's cool because it uses a paint, you know, and I, I mean, there's nothing more archival, you know, than, than a really good pigment paint. Um, so these are color processes that can be expected to last a long, long time. Oh, okay. So more research. So Nick, where, uh, where can people find you? Uh, well, the main place that I post my experiments and images is on Flickr under Nick Lyle. Uh, but I occasionally post an image on Instagram under Avi Nick, A-V-Y-N-I-C-K. Uh, and I would like to remind people that we have a homemade camera podcast Flickr group, which is a, a good place for discussion and posting images. Um, and that is just listed as homemade camera podcast. Uh, group on Flickr, yeah, and I do see that someone has posted some really cool images. Matt Melcher posted some really nice images that he made with the twenty-four squared pinhole that he got from you. Yeah, uh, there's some great color uh, shots on there. It make make this camera look quite appealing. And one of the thing, uh, Matt Melcher, he does a box of cameras podcast. 
So that mm-hmm. is uh, that's definitely uh, a podcast that that I like a whole lot. And he also um, uh, does work uh, or does um, social media on um, uh, on Instagram as a box of cameras. So um, yeah. Uh, yeah, and on Flickr, it's just Matt Melcher, all one word, M-A-T-T-M-E-L-C-H-E-R. But uh, yeah, look at the photos that he posted right. on Homemade Camera Podcast. That was my shout out. And there it finally came up. Yeah, okay. And, yeah, that looks really appealing to me. And one more reason to play with this uh, 35 format universal camera idea that we have. Because, yeah, I don't think 35 has been has been used enough different ways. I mean, what is there out there? There's right. the standard size, and then there's the X-Pan, and what else? That's pretty much it. I mean, right. There's a couple of oddball lamography half backs. Frame. But, yeah, there, there's right. some half frames out And there's there. half frame, yeah. But, I mean, there's yeah. just not that much, and so much more could be done with it. And nowadays, that's like that's the film that we stock that we have the most variety of films yeah. available in it. Yeah, um, one of the things uh, Matt does some uh, experimentation uh, with homemade ECN2, um, which is the developer that uh, cinematic films are are essentially designed for. Um, so uh, the, uh, these twenty four squared images um, are on Fuji two hundred. Um, Oh wait, oh that's the the Fuji 200. I think that that's the um the roll of film that I ship the 24 squared um with. So is that basically a, a superior type film? Uh, no, it's not. It, well, it's whatever is their generic 200. You know, right? Uh, well, they're and, calling it Fuji color, but you know that's just yeah. a word. Like I don't know how many stocks they're actually making right. anymore. I'm, you know, yeah. I'm with you on that and. Some people call it C200. I don't know if it's C200. I don't know if it's, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, uh, uh, yeah, just Fuji 200 is what I call it. Well, um, it looks, it so. looks really nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, so, uh, yeah, if you want to get a hold of me, you can get a hold of me, um, on, uh, Flickr. I am freezer of photons, all one word on Flickr. I am on Instagram as Graham Homemade Camera. You can get a hold of me uh, via email, Graham at homemadecamera.com, and Nick at homemadecamera.com goes to Nick. Um, and uh, I do have some cameras that I'm selling. Uh, as of right now, I have two in the in my Etsy shop, and uh, my Etsy shop is. Frozen Photon Camera Company. Uh, so actually, Frozen Photon Camera Co. Um, and uh, if you go to my Instagram, that's uh, and you look me up, that's part of my bio. There's a link in the bio. Um, and um, so uh, I still have some available. I'm ab- and I'm about to put eight more up for sale. Um, I got the pinholes for those. So, um, yeah, if you want to get a hold of me, uh, that's the way to get a hold of me. Yeah, thanks, Robbie Cribs, for uh, composing the music that we use throughout the podcast. And you can find more of Robbie's work at Soundtrap Studios. 